Thank you for pressing play. This is Pod With Me. Credit. He created a name for himself in the entertainment industry. And he's also taken the title of Mr. Black America. But how did he end up being a funeral cemetery consultant? And what is it like to work for a funeral home during this pandemic? Get ready, because the pod starts now. You can talk to me now where it's a lot easier, but eventually we're going to wind up having a conversation. And if we do it later, it could be a lot harder. We are in the front of the back of the line. You know, people go to doctors, obviously. We, um, hopefully they can be successful so they don't have to see me. Our cemetery, along with our sister cemetery, we've done almost 500 burials since January. Let's go. Roll sound. Are you good with one take? I'm here with Kyle, and Kyle says he's good with one take. How are you, Kyle? (laughs) I'm doing well, Alex. What has the coronavirus taught you? What has quarantine taught you? That life is very important. Relationships are very important. That you shouldn't take anything for granted, be it your relationships, your family, your health, Um, your self-worth, taking care of yourself. It seems like that the coronavirus really kind of just highlighted both the good and bad in people. It sure did. Tell everybody, what is it that you do? I am a funeral and cemetery consultant. I'm a type A individual. Go with it, Alex. I am a funeral and cemetery consultant with Dignity Memorial. We're the largest provider of funeral and cemetery services in North America. And I work here in the Miami market and I assist families in their very difficult time, but also help them prearrange for those hard times for their funeral and cemetery services. And the name is interesting, Dignity. Yeah. Dignity. Yes. Is there a lot of dignity? It all depends on who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> it all depends on who you ask. Um, you know, sadly, you know, sometimes people look at my industry like the car industry. You know, everyone needs one, but it tends to get a bad reputation. You know, I always get asked questions like, well, do you dig people up and rebury them? You know, why is it that, you know, a burial space costs $5,000? You know, are you overcharging my prices? You know, kind of thing. And why do you think people get that concept? Because we're dealing with death. You know, we're dealing with something that people are scared of. You know, one thing, we're all going to pay taxes and we're all going to die. And so because of that, people have a fear of it. And then due to that fear, they have misconceptions. And so part of what I do is to help people... Um, alleviate those misconceptions because at the end of the day I always say you know you can talk to me now where it's a lot easier but eventually we're going to wind up having a conversation and if we do it later it could be a lot harder so why don't you educate yourself now on the things that you're most afraid of when it comes to that so when the time comes you're educated and you can deal with it better exactly right from the start when it all started happening and people started dying and everything what was the big difference in your day-to-day um triple the deaths in a week. The um, Our cemetery, along with our sister cemetery, which is not far from us, between the both of us, we've done almost 500 burials since January. And what's, the, and what's the usual? Maybe half of that. Maybe half of that, maybe a little bit less. And what's really frightening about it is that a lot of them are unexpected. You know, um, just to give you an example, um, A week ago, we put a husband and wife to rest 
that passed within 48 hours of each other from the virus. You know, two weeks before that, I, had, I sat in front of a young man who was 29 years old and his mom was 54. He was broken, you know, and I had to sit there and help him make his cemetery arrangements for his mother. You know, and that has become an everyday thing to me. And when I tell you I've learned so many life lessons just through dealing with these families that I'll probably never look at my life or those that I love the same way again. Interesting. Um, it gives you a, uh, also an, you're not exactly in the, you are kind of like in the front lines, mm -hmm. but the, uh, the, back, the back part, right? Behind well, the the way, what I like to say is that we are in the front of the back of the line. You know, people go to doctors, obviously we honor and cherish our doctors and nurses, you know, who are on the front line. Um, hopefully they can be successful so they don't have to see me. But if they're unsuccessful, then we're on the front of that line. And another thing that makes it very challenging is that people are going to remember what we do for the rest of their lives, you know. And so, you know, kind of like doctors, I don't get to make mistakes. I don't get to have a bad day in the job that I do. I must be ready to serve and to get them through one of the hardest processes of their life. How do you deal with confronting these people that, that lose all these loved ones mm -hmm. on a day-to-day -day basis? How is it that you get prepared for it? Do they train you at work for this? Mm -hmm. Well, professionally speaking, I have to be licensed to do what I do, you know, and the numerous background checks, et cetera, to do what I do. And then, of course, once we're hired, we go through some very extensive training. So from a work technical standpoint, um, you know, there are certain procedures legally, you know, that we have to do because we're dealing with people's loved ones. But from a personal level, there's no amount of training that you can get, um, you know, all the psychology in the world can never prepare you for what we're going through right now. Um, I always say that if you stop caring, then you don't need to do what I do. You know, I, my eyes water every week. You know, my heart goes out to these people every single week and I just get through because I know that if I'm doing the job, if I'm dealing with the families, if I'm taking them through the process of their loved one passing to putting them to rest, that it's going to be done professionally and compassionately. And I know that about myself. And so therefore, I take solace in knowing that if I am working with a family, that it's going to be done correctly with the most with the highest level of professionalism and compassion. Out of all your cases, um, out of all your families, do you call them cases? How do you, what do you? Families. Families. Out of all the families you've worked with, which, is there a story that stands out the most? Um, yes, actually there is. It's not necessarily a Corona story, but a couple of months ago, um, a woman came in and her mother passed away. And what I found out through the process, and this was actually during the burial, it was actually her adopted mother. And she had eight adopted children that she raised as a single mother. And all of them were of different ethnicities, different backgrounds, white, black, Hispanic, Asian. And it was a very multicultural, multiracial service. And I'm like, wow, I mean, I know Miami is diverse, but to have all of this in one service is kind of incredible. And each person talked about their story of how they got adopted and how this woman who was never married, never had children of her own and was a school teacher on a school teacher salary, raised these kids and put them all through college. All eight of them were college educated and are now professionals. 
And, you know, and some of them are now married with children or whatever. And I stood there. And obviously we have to keep our composure because we're working for the cemetery and we're the ones that keep it together. But I, I couldn't hold back to tears because it was so compelling on how great this woman was to raise these people. And it really just kind of goes to show that with perseverance and with love and with compassion that, you know, that anything is possible. And I learned it through these these eight siblings, you know, that were, you know, they say that they were, they call themselves cabbages that nobody wanted. You know, their, their analogy was when people go to the grocery store, they squeeze on the vegetables and the fruits, you know, and they only pick the ones that they like the best. And what this woman did is that the ones that didn't feel as good are the ones that she's taken and she adopted them. And when I heard that story, I just thought it was the most remarkable thing. And I think I remember that for the best of my, rest of my life. That is amazing. Yeah, it is. Did you ever think in life you were going to do this? Um, the short end of the story is that I grew up in the modeling pageant and performing arts industry. My mother is from Central America and she was a beauty queen and she competed internationally and she competed as a Mrs. Contestant nationally and she ran a modeling agency. And so I grew up in modeling pageants and performing. Um, I was a competitive dancer. I won the United States National Dance Championships nine times. Um, I competed in the men's pageants. I'm a former Mr. Black America. I'm a former Mr. USA. I'm a former Mr. United States. Wow. Um, I had the opportunity to compete at Mr. Gay World, you know, two years ago, representing the United States. Um, you know, so I come from, you know, like yourself, I have an Emmy. Well, you've won an Emmy. I've been nominated for one, so I haven't won one. But um, I've been very accomplished. I ran my, I took over the family business, ran my mother's modeling and talent agency for 26 years. Um, I've had people like yourself. I look on the TV set and I see people that I touched and I see people that I've trained and I've seen people that I work with. And I always say, I remember her before that nose job and boob job, you know, um, I remember him before this, you know, I remember them before they were talented and they're talented because I trained them. And so I spent most of my life in the performing arts and the entertainment industry, kind of like yourself. And one day the industry changed on me. You know, there's a thing called reality TV. There's a thing called social media. And so for 26 years, I was in the business of making people talented. And then after they were accomplished, brokering them out to producers and directors to help them with their career. We now live in a world where how many followers do you have on Instagram? You know, um, how big of a fool do you make of yourself? on a reality TV show, or are you on a competition show, but you may not be the most talented, but you may have the best story. So what I did has started becoming irrelevant. Sadly, that talent didn't mean as much. Well, maybe you just had to reinvent the wheel a little bit, but um, uh, maybe you wouldn't have enjoyed it as much. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that in the sense that I took joy out of taking someone that couldn't walk, who couldn't talk, who couldn't chew gum, who couldn't model, who couldn't dance, who couldn't There's sing. still a lot of those type of people out there you can help. Yeah, well, yeah, but I don't know. It just seems to me that- More of a challenge. Yeah, it's more of a challenge, but also just from a business perspective, people were not realizing the worth of it is to be truly talented, to really know how to sing, to really know how to dance, to really know how to walk a stage. And it's really more about popularity. And I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying based on what I spent most of my life doing, it wasn't providing for me individually. And when industries change, you know, and I'm sure you know that based on what you've done, you have to make the decision, do you want to change with it? 
I was fortunate enough to leave when I was on top, you know, as far as what I did. And I made the conscious decision. I woke up on my 50th birthday and said, enough. And I sold my business four months later. Well, that makes sense because if, you, if, you're not in, if you're not enjoying the process, I think it's all about enjoying the yes. process. Well, I can give you a, a very distinct example. You know, a good portion of my work was in pageants. You know, so I had girls go to Miss Universe, Miss World, Miss International, Miss USA, Miss America, very accomplished in pageants. And so I made divas for a living. You know, I took a girl who could have been a plain Jane. And by the time I got done with her, she was a diva. And I mean that in a positive sense, as far as self-confidence and being able to present herself. Nowadays in pageants, they want the girl next door. You know, they want someone that they that they feel are relatable. They're not looking for the fiercest girl anymore. They're looking for someone that talks just like them. Yes. The human connections. Yes, them. yes, absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not what I created. I created girls to be their best self. Yeah, over the top. You know, fierce, you know, as we like to say, sickening. You know, they walk into a room and people go, well, who the hell is that? You know, wear her hair, her makeup, her wardrobe, her walk, her presence. She doesn't even need to speak, but just her mere aura created attention. And the industry is no longer there. I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing, but if you're not looking... It's there for RuPaul's Drag Race. Well, it is, and I did, <laughs> and I've worked in the drag arena too, and that's a different show, so we're not going to get into that, you know, but I created a lot of winners in the drag industry too, cool. so I enjoyed it. Awesome, awesome. What is it that you miss most out of that time in your life? Okay. I miss the freedom. I got to travel the world. You know, I, I got to create winners and performers and entertainers. You know, I've been to China. I've been to Africa. I've been all throughout Europe. I've been to South America. I've been to Central America. You know, there was a point in time when I was really in the heyday of my career, when I was in a different city every week and in a different country every month. Mm -hmm. You know, I was really doing it to that level. And I really kind of show how the industry changed on a dime, upside down in less than three years. You know, I went from being internationally known in my field and what I did to now being a guy in Miami who's a funeral and cemetery consultant. How did we get there? <laughs> and how did you get to the funeral out of all places? Yeah, sure. Well, my best friend works for Dignity Memorial here mm -hmm. in Miami. And does he have a lot of dignity? Yeah, he does. He does. Now, let's, let's keep it as, how do kids say, let's keep it 100. Okay. There are people who don't. <laughs> you know, and, and it is what it is. I mean, that's in any profession. You know, you have people who have dignity and, and who have ethics and morals. And then you have people that don't. What makes it really hard in my profession is that when you have people that don't, it impacts people's lives, you know. And, and, but again, that's a different show. My best friend um, said you will be really good at this. Um, you know, there's a lot of money to be made in Miami. If you came here, you should come down here and try it. I interviewed on a Monday. I did a second interview on a Wednesday. I got an offer on a Thursday and I'm living in Florida three weeks later. So I took a chance on life. I took a chance on something I really don't know. And, you know, so far so good. And, um, but you know, I've only been here a year and a half. So still learning and, you know, just seeing where, where life and where God takes me. But right now this is where I'm at. What has been the most difficult thing to adapt to in Miami? Dating. Ah, dating. <laughs> yes, dating. Wow. You, now, <laughs> since I've always lived in Miami, I don't know what would be the difference to date somewhere else. Okay. So tell me your experience of somewhere else and dating in Miami. Sure, sure. Well, I'm from Chicago, so I'm from the Midwest. And so coming from the Midwest, I think we tend to be a little bit more friendlier. 
Um, I think we tend to be a little bit less status driven and people kind of want to date. They want to get to know you. And it's like, who are you on the inside? And you know, what you bring to the table, but are you a good person? I tend to realize that when you have conversations with people, when you're dating in the Midwest, it's more about who you are as a person. In Miami, what gym do you go to? What car do you drive? What is your address? You know, everyone has a list and lists are not bad. I think everyone should have a list, but I noticed here in Miami, the list tends to be a little bit more superficial. And so what I realized here, and again, you know, keeping it totally honest in 100, in order for me to date here, I realized there's some things about me that I have to think about if I want to be successful and hopefully find the right person for me. You know, and and so but you don't you don't believe that that destiny has its way and maybe you're supposed to be single now. I, I would hope so. You don't believe in movies and fairy tales? Uh, well, <laughs> I think you do more than I do. But um, I hope that happens. But I'm also a believer. You know, I do believe in what you put out in the universe will come back to you. I do believe that. I also believe that you must be what you want to attract. And I've always been that person, but coming out of Chicago, the standards were different. And so living down here, I reevaluated my standards and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I just kind of look at some things differently. And so now I'm working at, you know, I've always been a very physically fit person, but here in Miami, you all take it to a brand new place. And so... (laughs) Oh my God, Miami, I'm sorry. Yeah, you all take it to a brand new place, you know, so I have a trainer and... You know, I don't know. It just seems like, I don't want to say that people down here are more superficial, but I would venture to say that people down here are a lot more visual. And you don't think, and you don't think that has to do with the circles you're in? Well, come on, I come out of the entertainment industry, so I know how important it is to be visuals. But what was different for me is that there was a time and place for everything here. It's you know, on 24-7, 365. That's, that's kind of what the difference is. I'm not intimidated by that because I worked in the entertainment industry for so long. But please ask me my name before you ask me the car that I drive. You know, ask me how am I doing oh before- Oh my God, I should be meeting the wrong people because- Apparently. Maybe so, maybe I'm meeting, maybe you could introduce me to the right people. Give me an experience on a date you went on. I don't know if I could say that. <laughs> well, you don't have to say the name. Okay, tell, me, say the name. tell me one experience. Okay, that, that's fine. Um, went to a Thai restaurant. A guy decided to take me to a Thai restaurant. And we were having a really, really nice conversation. And this guy comes up and starts talking to him. And I don't think anything of it. And so everything is going great with dinner. And he puts money down and goes out, take care of dinner. Thank you very much. He gets up and leaves and walks out with the other guy. Oh my goodness. Right in front of your face? Right in front of me. So he paid for dinner. Now we drove separate cars. Thank God know. he paid for dinner he at least, right? He paid for dinner, right. He paid for dinner, yeah. That is terrible. It, it is, it is. And that then, is terrible. It is. And then I had another date where, you know, we were watching movies and having coffee or whatever, and there's a bang, bang, bang on the door, and it's his, it's his ex, you know, and says, oh, we're at his place, obviously. We're at his okay. place, yes, we're, and it's his ex. And the ex gave him the I'm sorry kind of thing. And then I was asked to leave. This is like um, Sex in the City. <laughs> yes, very much so. Like and, something that would happen to Miranda. And the thing about it, though, is that, you know, it's not like I don't got my stuff together. I'm about to use appropriate language on this, but <laughs> that's what it's got my.
together. You know, and I mean, I work out and I have a decent body and, you know, I'm telegenic, but... Yeah, it's not about you. It's about yeah, the person. It's about the person. And, and so really, I guess to tie all of this up about dating is that because of those previous experiences, what I decided to do was to date me for a while, you know, and, you know, again, I've been in Miami a year and a half. You know, I need to focus on me, you know, and learn to be happy here, you know. And See, if you're not happy and you don't have it together there, yourself, your inside. Correct. You're not going to attract the right person out. Well, I'll, I'll say this much. I can comfortably say that when I moved here, I think my external was fine. I think I wasn't right on the inside. You know, I was having a hard time dealing with just life changes, changes in career, um, you know, being a man over 50. Um, so do you have a midlife crisis? Um, uh, I think so. I think in many ways I'm still going through it, you know. Um, when I have young boys calling me daddy, you know, I'm just like, really? <laughs> Are you serious? And the funny thing, guys, you can see Kyle, but Kyle looks very... <laughs> looks like he's 30. Well, you know, when people meet me, they think I'm in my late 30s. I do get that often. But my midlife crisis is more of a, I'm in a new place, a new career. You know, where am I going to be? And, and the self-conscious part of me is saying, at this stage of my life, am I where I want to be? You know, I made a decision at 50 years old to start over again. You don't want to buy a convertible or anything like that? No, no, not quite. Even though I do see a Beamer X3 in my future. But, you know, I, you know, so that's kind of what more my crisis is, is that at the age that I am today, did I make the right decision, really turning my life upside down and starting over again? The court is still out on that. But I have to say that, you know, I've been working really hard to make things work. And I, and I do think that I made the right decision to come here. I do believe that. That is amazing. And you decided to stay here. I did. I did. Um, hopefully my mom is going to move down here and get out of the snow in Chicago. And I'm moving to a new place next week. So I'm kind of excited about that. And um, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to stay here and we're going to make it work, you know, so that decision I made, you know, and um, hopefully, you know, God willing, the universe will put the right person to do that. And, you know, the career will keep flourishing and going in the right direction. So I did make the decision to do that. And you keep thinking like that, everything will turn out like that. I, I want to ask you if you can go back in time to your 20 year old self. Yes. Future Kyle tells 20 year old self Kyle, what would it be? I would say to continue to live your dreams. I would tell Kyle of, you know, 21, 22, that you made the right decision to pursue what you really wanted. You know, at 21, 22 years old, I wanted to take over my mother's company. She did not want me to, and I browbeated her in it. And because of it, um, I lived a full life. The advice that I would give him, though, that he wasn't thinking about retirement back then. And so, you know, Kyle back then was not thinking of retirement from Kyle of today, 20 years from now. And so that was kind of the mistake that Kyle made, who is he is now correcting, you know, but, you know, the, so that the, I would compliment him on living his dream. And I would say you probably should have started planning for your future a little bit early, but I don't think it's too late. And what advice do you give everybody out there dealing with this whole quarantine 
life-changing experiences that everyone's going through. What advice do you have for people? Sure. Take care of yourself first. You know, it's kind of like when you're on an airplane and the flight attendant says, you know, before you put on the other person's mask, put on your own first. Because if you don't take care of yourself first, how are you going to take care of someone else? So when you're in quarantine, exercise, eat right, read a book, watch seminars on YouTube, you know, take that time to better yourself. Because when you better yourself, you're bettering your family. Sitting down, just watching Netflix and eating ho-hos all day and not doing anything constructive, you're not moving the bar forward for the people who you love and care for. So take that me time in quarantine and make me a better person. Kyle, thank you for being on, but one more thing. Don't Don't fall fall off the pod. It's a wrap. Ah, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, but hmm, did you know that we have our very own app? You can go to your app store now and download Pod With Me. And don't forget to visit us on social media. This is Alex J. Aguiar, and until next time, don't fall off the pod.